Welcome to Data Futures, a series about how technology is shaping our lives and what we need to do about it. Data Futures comes to you from the Media Futures Hub at the University of New South Wales and is recorded on the unceded lands of the Bejigal people. We acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I'm Dr. Tanya Dreyer, your host for this episode and a Scientia Fellow and Associate Professor in the School of the Arts and Media at UNSW. So this is the final of four podcasts offering key insights from the Data Futures Symposium held at the University of New South Wales on 30 September 2019. This episode takes up the theme of data justice as a key challenge for futures shaped by data and finishes with closing reflections from Professor Mark Andreevic. The panel on data justice foregrounds questions of social justice in the context of ubiquitous datafication. Panelists explore key concerns including inequality, discrimination, colonisation, privatisation, power and control, and also grapple with the challenge of imagining more just data futures. Opening the discussion is Dr Justine Humphrey from the University of Sydney, with a provocation on the benefits and pitfalls of inclusion in datafied societies. Next up is Dr. Jathan Sadowski, also from the University of Sydney, on deconstructing capital and democratising data. Jathan performs a slam poem on algorithmic injustice and provocations on unmaking. Then you'll hear from Danielle Hines in the Media Futures Hub at UNSW on data justice in urban contexts, explained with examples from Western Sydney. Next up is me, Tanya Dreyer thinking aloud on how to bring together scholarship on social media as a decolonizing tool and political economy research on data colonialism. After me comes Dr. Elaine Jingzhao, also from UNSW, on informal governance and questions of legitimacy, power and consequences. The final panel speaker is Associate Professor Heather Ford from the University of Technology, Sydney. Heather reflects on how some Wikipedians are challenging the unintended consequences of datafication and highlights the dilemmas around a right to verifiability. The session on data justice was chaired by Dr. Jonathan Hutchison from the University of Sydney's Sociotech Futures Lab. I'll now hand over to the first speaker, Dr. Justine Humphrey. Digital inclusion is part of the solution for how to address many social harms and injustices. Digital media offers multiple opportunities for personal communication, access to information and services for building identity, and can be harnessed to counter social inequalities that result from differential resources and treatment based on race, geography, ability, class, sexuality, and gender. At the same time, access to and use of digital media provides the means to intensify the process by which life is captured, regulated and administered as data, with some groups faring far worse than others. Here are a few examples. Since December 2016, from the time of its wider rollout, the Australian government's automated debt collection system, colloquially referred to as RoboDebt, has targeted thousands of welfare recipients with debt claims in relation to their reported income. Many of these have turned out to be grossly overestimated and the system itself has been the subject of a Senate committee inquiry, an investigation by the Commonwealth Ombudsman, and calls for its closure by community and welfare advocacy groups around the country. A class action has just been launched 
by a legal firm, Gordon and Slater's, to test its legality. Much has been said of the lack of justice built into the system through the replacement of human oversight by an imperfect computer algorithm. Yet if we scrutinise the root causes of the harmful outcomes, a key factor is the online self-management required to negotiate and respond to debt notifications through the MyGov web portal. People unable to respond through lack of access to an internet service or mobile phone or for other reasons have been penalised through progression of the debt without an opportunity to correct, question or appeal the decision. Further deficiencies in communication designed into the system were noted by the Senate committee. This included the use of written letters with complex language, the omission of crucial details such as the dedicated service phone number, the lack of disability assistance, the convoluted navigation required on the MyGov online portal. All of which meant that even if a notification was received, many were unable to engage in the system, let alone challenge a debt. Another example of a digital welfare system initiated by the same government, the cashless debit card. Trials launched in early 2016, in which again there is an onus on individuals to self-manage their use of services in an online context. At the same time, their financial agency and independence are severely curtailed. Those forced to participate in the CDC trials, the large majority of whom are First Nation Australians in remote parts of the country, have 80% of their income quarantined into a special government-issued debit card account managed by a, an outsourced private provider. As part of the system, accounts have been specially designed to prevent cash withdrawals and purchases deemed harmful, such as gambling and alcohol, and account holders can only shop at those businesses that have signed up to the CDC trials. Communities in the trial have drawn parallels to the experience of conditional welfare and social control imposed upon First Nation Australians in the colonial era through the system of rations. At the same time, the system is premised on inclusion in a digital society, made possible through the use of digital payment systems that record, store and track all transactions, creating actionable data for government agencies and for users who must have online access to check their account balances and to carry out other essential banking activities. More recently, I've been researching the design of smart technologies in cities, focusing on their public reception and use. This builds on my research on the digital needs and uses of the urban homeless. Smart city initiatives, such as a smart Wi-Fi kiosk, which is designed with a range of connectivity services like free Wi-Fi and telephoning, USB charging, an emergency button, and access to mapping and directory services. All of these services are heavily used by marginalised groups, many of whom are homeless, many of whom lack secure and reliable mobile voice and data services. However, to what extent might the heavy reliance on these services expose them to more physical and data risks? The free Wi-Fi is most valuable in its network form as a source of behavioural data, generated from the movements of registered users as their mobiles seamlessly connect from one kiosk to the next, creating a map of their movements through the city in real time. What do these examples have in common? They range across country and cultural contexts and technologies, but manifest the same paradox that is a subject of this provocation. With its aim to address inequalities in access, skills and use, 
Digital inclusion is an important element of the broader social inclusion agenda. Major digital disparities continue to persist in many developed and developing countries, with Australia being no exception. Almost 2.6 million Australians do not use the internet. Nearly 1.3 million are not connected. However, digital inclusion does not get to the heart of the problem identified by Virginia Eubanks that some people experience technology as an extension of a disciplinary system rather than terms of benefits. And I would suggest that this issue is greatly magnified by the shift to data-driven societies. Many of these disciplinary processes are associated with the digitisation of welfare, health and government. So just as concerning are the ways in which these groups are captured within systems of social sorting that use the vast pools of health, financial, spatial and other data to generate individual profiles and risk assessments that have the potential to further exclude and marginalise. Digital inclusion has been relatively protected from critical concern. Who could argue against it? Yet with its normative emphasis on benefits, it may not be the best or only framework for engaging with the ways that technologies create new harms and are used as an instrument of exclusion. As a critical perspective on participatory media has emerged to tackle the ways that the internet is caught up in and reproduces particular forms of user exploitation, so too do we need to revise our understanding of digital inclusion in the context of data-driven societies. I'm reminded of Giorgio Agamben's exploration of a similar paradox at the centre of sovereign power. He argued that because sovereign rulers make decisions over life, this produces bare lives vulnerable to violence. Life is the exteriority that enables sovereignty to exist. As explained by the political theorist Gundogdu, it is more precisely an inclusive exclusion, which signifies a double movement, capturing at the very moment of excluding. We need to understand and address the increasing harms and new forms of exclusion that accompany digital inclusion. Other data justice and equity approaches offer ways to explore the relationship between digital exclusion and these asymmetric technologization processes. And I agree with uh, Mark Andrechevich in his very provocative and inspiring talk this morning that we need to think about these in terms of changes in disciplinary logics as well towards more preemptive logics and what that might mean for our ability to articulate social problems and address those in any way, shape or form. Similarly, while many of these issues are an outcome of datafication on a massive social scale, they are also closely connected to regimes of exclusion, exclusion that play out in a range of situations and contexts, historically and in the present, whose ideologies, values and logics are reinscribed in and through technologies and automated systems. Thanks very much, Justine. Um, some really interesting things to think through there. Uh, with our next presenter, I've had the pleasure of seeing these two tag team before, which has been uh, a lovely uh, insight into what's about to come. Uh, I'd like to welcome to the microphone uh, Jathan, Jason, Jathan Sadowski from the University of Sydney as well. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, that slides by there. In my, in my eight minutes, I'm going to try to do two things very quickly. So one is a original spoken word poem about what's being made, and the other is a provocation for unmaking, right? So in this poem, then, 
bringing together some of my work on scoring systems and smart cities, um, trying to join those together, embodying four different perspectives from this system. Uh, it's called I am the score machine. So I am the algorithm. I am a refraction of reality, an organizer of society, a, a processor that's proprietary. I am a social scoring system, mathematical morality applied, each life simplified, datafied. I am the judge, no jury, an all-knowing actuary, issuing three-digit decrees. I am the authority of reputation, preceding people in every situation, accounting the virtue of every action. I am the administer of privilege, putting people in their proper place, granting rights by quantified grace. I am the arbiter of access, opening the world for the trusted, meeting out data-driven justice. I am the apex of power and knowledge. My score is bond, beyond bias, beyond reproach, beyond recourse. I am an algorithm governing the city, a ubiquitous score in urban society, deployed by a technology company. I am the city. I am the ultimate unified smart urbanism, a city built on collection and control, monitoring every body, managing every soul. I am the core of the city, a hybrid public-private entity, the central office of reputation and evaluation, the core. I am the analysis of data doubles, past, present, and future compiled, people processed, policed, profiled. I am the enforcement of exclusion, impeding and allowing inclusion, a spatial stratifying solution. I am the districts, parks, stores, and more, open only for those with a good score, secured by guards and locked doors. I am the personalized city interface, sorting social standing class as a service, assigning exactly what each score deserves. I am the urban score machine, a society of total surveillance and economy of numerical violence. I am the glitch. I am a programmer's mistype, the product of a long night, an accident, an oversight. I am a machine's miscalculation, a computational creation, an error, a malfunction. I am a problem nobody rectified, hidden, deep inside, buried, but I did not die. I am now a feature, not a bug, ignored to maintain integrity, overlooked in the name of objectivity. I am an inescapable imperfection, a chaotic corruption, a reverberating repercussion. I am an echo's vibration, a pebble's ripple, a butterfly wing's flap. I am a glitch in the system. I contain multitudes and magnitudes, minor and major, one among many. I am the city, or citizen. I am pretty normal, nothing too unusual. Recorded, logged, analyzed, ranked, my whole life captured, data banked. I am moving up, improving my brand. Every choice is calculated, planned, living all my life rated, yet in command. And I am a reliable, trustworthy node. Work hard, buy right, pay what's owed. A consultant helped me crack that code. I am better than your average Joe, the reward of positive data flow. So why does the screen say, score too low? I am confused, my request didn't work, but access is a high score perk. Hmm, must be a weird computer quirk. I am reporting a mistake that's glaring. Dear citizen, thank you for sharing, but rest assured the core is unerring. I am certain something is not right. My score totally crashed overnight. It's way worse than a request denied. I am unable to live at this rate. My house, my job, my friends, my fate are all tied to this algorithmic mandate. I am just hoping this issue will be corrected. Dear citizen, your request has been rejected. And due to complaints, your score has been affected. All right, that was number one. <laughs> So that was a poem about what about the kind of systems that are being made. And now, so about unmaking. So there, there's an impulse to constantly build 
new stuff, more layers of things and systems tacked onto and piled on top of the current strata. We surely need alternative technology, but we also need to unmake so much of the technology that already exists. It's not enough to look around at the world and imagine countless possibilities for constructing, shaping, and interpreting things differently. We have to recognize the materiality of things too, the way they become stable and block change. You can only get so far by ignoring or building around concrete stuff. Eventually, those things must be taken apart, cleared away, and unmade in order to open up new paths forward. For many, unmaking sounds radical, but is it any more radical or ridiculous than turning innovation into a fetish driven by the incessant need to do something, anything, for the sake of doing it, even if it isn't really all that novel or useful and then equating it to social progress? We train people to be innovators, not maintainers, let alone unmakers. Innovation is sexy, maintenance is boring, and unmaking is deviant. What do we get from all this innovation? We mostly end up with an overabundance of solutions looking for problems. Not all things are created equally and many things should never have been created in the first place. At the very least, we cannot take for granted the knee-jerk celebration of making and damnation of unmaking. If capitalism gets to celebrate creative destruction for its own ends, then why can't we reclaim it for different ends? Just opening ourselves to the possibility of unmaking helps us reassess the worth of things in our lives, our society. When it comes to smart technology, we can start unmaking by simply downgrading the unnecessarily upgraded things that now fill our lives, our homes, our cities. Not everything has to be equipped with sensors and connected to the cloud. Indeed, most things should not be. Strip out the sensors, switch off the signals. Think of it as Marie Kondo, but for technopolitics. <laughs> Does this thing contribute to human well-being and or social welfare? If not, toss it away. The lifestyle gurus in Silicon Valley will happily sell you a disconnected weekend in the woods like a silent retreat with no Wi-Fi signal. So you can briefly escape from the smart society before returning to life as usual. This is a deviously brilliant plan, which convinces people that the solution of the problems of a smart society is paying for the privilege of recharging our physical, mental, spiritual batteries, just so we can dive back into the capitalist hellscape, ready to grind harder and produce more. Ultimately, unmaking means thinking bigger than just downgrading our smart toasters or detoxing from our smartphones. We need more than just a temporary reprieve from the speed, management, anxiety, and resentment induced by capitalism. Rather, unmaking is a method of reckoning with the very material foundations of and forms of society created by capitalism. Thank you. Fantastic, thanks, Jathan. Um, I've been uh, I've been amazed actually by the the imaginative uh, approaches of most of the presenters in the last um, last few panels as well. So thanks for continuing that one through as well, Jathan. Um, we now switch from the University of Sydney uh, back to this area here to the University of New South Wales, uh, and our third speaker is Danielle Hines. Um, hi, so. Firstly today, I'd like to address the question of what is data justice? Um, data justice is the foregrounding of questions of social justice in the context of datafication. Um, as has already been outlined in the program, if um, we've read through it, data justice endeavors to draw out key concerns around datafication and its relation to inequality, discrimination, power, and control. And it attempts to imagine more just data futures. 
As has been demonstrated by many researchers, particularly um, those from Cardiff's Data Justice Lab, such as Lena Densick, process of, processes of datafication often perpetuate and reinforce existing power dynamics, dynamics of oppression and domination. Today I will briefly discuss an example of datafication occurring here in Sydney and attempt to tease out some of the social justice concerns that surround it. This example comes from Canterbury, Bank, Canterbury Bankstown's Smart City Program. Um, and it's more, a more quotidian and banal example of datafication than some of the other examples we've heard about here today. So for those of you who aren't from Sydney, um, Canterbury Bankstown is in the western suburbs. Um, this is it, it's a very large um, council area. And throughout 2018, Canterbury Bankstown um, in Sydney's west developed a smart city roadmap. The purpose of this roadmap was to set out how the council will take the journey to becoming a smart city and to provide council guidance in decision-making throughout this journey. After a year-long consultation process, council adopted the, smart, the CB City Roadmap, as it's known, Canterbury-Rankstown City Roadmap, just last week on the 24th of September. The council also developed several smart CB City projects supporting the roadmap. One of these projects is the Safe TV Schools. This project, as outlined in this um, document, aims to um, address the issue of um, double parking in school zones and the disregard for um, road rules in school zones in Canterbury-Bankstown. Earlier this year, I heard a member of Canterbury-Bankstown's digital innovation team speak about the Smart CB City and the Safe TV Schools program. They outlined the frequent problem of double parking in school zones in Canterbury-Bankstown um, and the fact that the management strategies currently in place to address this problem um, were costly and largely ineffective. And the main strategy being that a small number of rangers would patrol particular school zones on particular days, but obviously they couldn't cover them all with the number of schools in this um, area. They also pointed out the problem that Canterbury-Bankstown is one of the most culturally and linguistically diverse local government areas in Sydney, with 60.1% of people speaking a language other than English at home in 2016. Um, the person from council pointed to the problem that many people in Canterbury-Bankstown couldn't necessarily understand the signs around school zones um, because of language barriers. So the proposed solution to this problem was twofold. First came the development of um, signs that use iconography along with words to more clearly convey the road rules across language barriers. Um, this comes from a slide developed by Canterbury-Bankstown and um, distributed earlier this year, translated to some of the key languages spoken in the area. After a four-week period with these new signs installed around the schools, the second element of the solution is to, come, is to commence, and that's the installation of new CCTV cameras with auto recognition of license plates that will be installed to more efficiently issue fines to those who do not obey the signs. So road safety in schools is important and it is necessary that a solution to um, the problem of people not adhering to road rules is found. However, the approach taken by Canterbury-Bankstown raises several questions around social and data justice. For example, there is no information read readily available on whether there was any community consultation to ensure that the new signs with iconography actually convey the road rules in a more clear way. And if the signs do turn out to be more effective and actually dramatically re reduce the infringement of road rules, the new CCTV cameras with license plate recognitions will still be installed. 
Um, so this approach also does little to address possible re root causes of the problem, such as whether people actually have enough space to pick up and drop off their children, or whether they fully understand why the road rules are in place uh, and the importance of them. What this approach does do is increase surveillance and increase the efficiency of punishing those who infringe the rules, which is not an uncommon element of technological solutions to problems. Um, it's also important to note that Canterbury-Bankstown is a particularly stigmatised area in Sydney. Um, it is highly diverse and it's also one of the lowest socioeconomic um, areas in Sydney. Um, so this is a map showing the CIFAR um, index across Sydney. Um, so the lighter areas have the lowest score um, and it measures socioeconomic advantage and disadvantage, education and occupation and economic resources. Um, another uh, program that was proposed earlier this um, month was the drug testing of welfare recipients and Canterbury-Bankstown was one of the trial areas um, for that pro proposed program, which kind of shows um, another element of how this area is stigmatised. So, um, with the, like, lang with the way that this area is, um, with the population of this area having these um, programs started, that take um, punitive approaches that increase surveillance, um, there's a risk to reinforce existing dynamics of disadvantage um, against lower income people, um, people who speak other than languages other than English. Um, furthermore, this solution is a, an example of the way socio, the socio-technical imaginary of the smart city can shape and limit what is considered to be a viable and desirable solution to an ur urban problem. Leading STS scholar Sheila Jasanoff defines socio-technical imaginaries as collectively held, institutionally stabilised and publicly performed visions of desirable futures. These visions are animated by shared understandings of forms of social life and social order that are attainable through and supportive of advances in science and technology. While the word desirable is privileged in this definition, it is important to be aware that visions of desirability almost always correlate with fears of potential harms. Within the socio-technical imaginary of the smart city, techni technological solutions, such as the one I have described today, are seen as the most desirable and efficient means of solving problems. When such solutions are pursued, there is a risk that solutions with a stronger focus on social understanding and community engagement are push pushed aside and disregarded, as well as the other concerns I outlined earlier. My fellow panelist, Jathan Sadowski, has done some valuable work exploring how, the corporate, how corporations shape the socio-technical imaginary of the smart city and how the smart city may pr preclude and crowd out alternate imaginaries. While the smart city currently holds considerable sway in shaping visions of the future city, Jathan and his co-author Roy Bender identified several alternative imaginaries that may challenge the dominant imaginary of the smart city. These ideas are built on ideas such as urban social justice, urban commons, or civic hacking and openness. Building on this, I will conclude today with a final provocation or questions um, for everyone. What might a vision of the future city look like for you? What place does the use of data and new technology have in your future city? And how might we center ongoing struggles against domination and oppression in our visions of the future city? This panel keeps going to the time that you're all setting. We'll be out of here by four o'clock. Yes, justice. Uh, okay, I'd now like to introduce Tanya Dreyer to give her talk. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you, everyone. Um, 
Well, uh, I can promise you a non-data centric <laughs> uh, provocation or intervention because uh, I come to this topic as someone who's um, worked on media and social justice questions for a very long time um, but is far from, uh, is interested in what um, happens to some of the, um, some key questions um, that have really centred media and social justice work for a long time, what happens in the context of datafication. And so today I want to just um, briefly think out loud <laughs> um, uh, around um, uh, ideas, the, the both um, literature and, and practice work that um, looks at social media as a decolonising tool and then think about how that sits in tension and what does it mean um, uh, uh, as we have also a really important um, emergent and very persuasive uh, scholarship around data colonialism and the, um, the thesis that we are increasingly colonised by data. So when calls to delete Facebook <coughs> spread on social media in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, um, a number of important commentaries also <coughs> appeared. And here I'll read just a little bit from um, uh, a piece by Jenny Manet, uh, Delete Facebook, Not in Indian Country. And um, Manet writes, Deleting Facebook would be like pulling the plug at the party, rendering total darkness and what's more, deafening silence, where there's already plenty of that. And it's not just Indian country that would feel the extreme disconnect in a Facebook-less scenario. The entire Indigenous world would reel from its absence. To be sure, the social network has done more for bolstering the mod modern Indigenous rights agenda than perhaps any other method of our time. In fact, community by tribal community, Facebook delivers in uh, times of today's most galvanising needs. From extreme rates of violence against Indigenous women to environmental battles like bear's ears, Facebook has helped close gaps of injustice one post at a time. Um, and at the time also comparable arguments were made <coughs> by uh, disability advocates as well. So a couple of pieces, um, one, the missing link, why disabled people can't afford to hashtag delete Facebook. Um, and another one, delete Facebook, it's not that simple for disabled people, just as, you know, quick, very easy to find um, examples. Now, of course, there are really excellent and important critiques of the whole hashtag delete Facebook movement, if you can even call it that, call. Um, but here I want to draw out um, a slightly different point, and I'm really here uh, following First Nations colleagues and their work on um, Indigenous social media. So for engaged First Nations scholars in Australia, Twitter and other social media platforms are celebrating, celebrated as a decolonising tool, very literally. And here I'm thinking of the work of Lenore Gaia um, and also uh, Bronwyn Carlson. So I myself have co-edited with Bronwyn Carlson a journal theme issue um, on Indigenous innovation in social media, which was framed as a decolonising intervention because it's the first in Australia, possibly the first anywhere, to feature all Indigenous scholars writing on Indigenous media, in this case writing on Indigenous innovation in social media. Um, and here again, the decolonising possibilities of social media were celebrated in every article and they're from around the world. It's a, a uh, 2018 theme issue of Media International Australia. 
So it's a very common um, framing and the idea of um, Twitter as a decolonising tool points us to um, an interest uh, in uh, issues like voice, storytelling, representation, shifting the narrative, privileging Indigenous voices, speaking back to colonising discourses and knowledges, uh, amplifying Indigenous knowledges and much more. So that's the decolonising framework. Um, and if we look back to um, disability advocacy as well, we could look at the work of Beth Haller, uh, Beth Haller or Filippo Trevisan, among others, who write about the hashtag CryptoVote um, movement um, and the online disability march at the time of um, uh, Trump's inauguration in the US. Um, again, uh, um, looking at um, Twitter and other social media platforms as social justice tools. And I think there's, you know, there's something very um, important about these arguments. But how does all this sit or square with the also very important and convincing and compelling political economy critiques of social media platforms? as data-driven exemplars of surveillance capitalism or what Kuldir Mehas have analysed as data colonialism. <clears throat> How can social media function as a decolonising tool if we are all colonised by data? <clears throat> so the literature on data colonialism is really important in many ways and there's um, people here who are engaged in this work much more um, comprehensively than I. Um, but um, we can think of just a few key concepts here to think about the centrality of data mining um, to the political economy, you know, to the classic business models of the social media environment. So highly extractive economies, exploitative arrangements which reconfigure the social for data harvesting, extracting value from every facet of human life, the importance of um, surveillance also here. And there's a couple of intersections, I think, with some of those um, classic social justice uh, uh, frames that I mentioned earlier. So if we look at the very well-known factoid that um, Indigenous Australians are overrepresented as users of social media, so use social media at a higher rate than non-Indigenous Australians, we could then extrapolate that Indigenous Australians are also overrepresented in um, doing the unpaid labour, which of course generates profits for um, so the social media giants. We can also think about the way in which the data mining to some extent is ag agnostic in terms of content. So I think here of Philippa Metcalf's work in Athens where she looks at the way in which the Greek government now uses Skype, Facebook and Viber as the key technologies for asylum seekers who arrive. Um, so the first step of registering an asylum claim, um, at least through some of the Greek ports, is happens through those platforms, literally Skype, Facebook and Viber. And so of course for Skype, Vi Facebook and Viber it's really quite... Um, irrelevant <laughs> as to uh, whether or not this is um, a, a, an asylum registration process that might be designed to actually deter and delay claims doesn't matter because um, value can be extracted nonetheless. 
So I guess here what I'm trying to, um, you know, if I have a, a sort of provocation or certainly what I'm kind of playing with and trying to think through a little more is how can these strands in media research be brought together more comprehensively and generatively? What can we do instead of just one trumps the other, which I do not think is the case? So bringing together or thinking through the political economy critiques, incredibly important, but also First Nations scholarship the experience and expertise of First Nations and disability scholars with the analysis of extractive business models. And I guess just, um, so I would definitely um, thank Vanessa very much for her presentation there and I'd love to know more. And also just to riff from where we started this morning, um, I think one of the key things that the social media as a decolonising tool points us towards is this continuing importance of the, the realm of representation, narrative, story. Um, giving an account of oneself voice, which have been really key concepts for media and social justice thinking for a very long time. And yes, datification squishes them, <laughs> um, but even more important then to keep thinking with those concepts. Thank you. Thanks, Tanya. Um, <laughs> um, okay, our fifth uh, speaker for this panel um, is a colleague that we did our PhD together, so it's lovely to be sharing the, sh the, the same stage, um, uh, different universities, of course. Um, uh, please welcome Elaine Jingzhou to the... Thank you, Jonathan. So uh, what I would like to focus today is the um, informal governance on digital platforms. Uh, legitimacy, power politics, and consequences. So there's lots. I'll start with the idea of um, informality. Um, the idea of inform informal economy is uh, much more discussed in the um, global south, even if uh, you know, even though that's an inappropriate word, but just for the sake of convenience. Um, and with the rise of digital platforms, we are seeing the, um, you know, uh, those sort of informalities, informal economies are gaining prominence with uh, digital platforms. And at the same time, the um, governance by digital platforms has its inherent um, informality there. Um, and I'm going to focus on um, two parts of it. So one is that um, algorithmic-based um, uh, or centric governance is starts with data. We need um, a lot of data to start with. So the starting point of those um, training data, uh, the process um, comes, the process of tagging and profiling and all that comes with um, inherent discrimination and biases. And these um, actually map onto the existing um, discrimination bias biases um, across races, um, class, and gender, these lenses. Um, so one of the examples that I would like to mention here is the, uh, the notion of quality um, in China. So we, we, we now have a lot of metrics, a lot of tags that we can put on a person. The one enduring tag of that is, um, you know, low quality people, ba ba basically meaning, you know, um, in Mandarin, it's uh, so low, meaning low quality people, literally. And this notion of uh, low quality people could get people purged out of the, say, for example, first tier cities. Um, uh, their, their access to urban areas, for example, are completely blocked, even when they can have um, you know, informal settlements there, for example. So the algorithms, uh, algorithms actually maps onto the social tagging or social sorting I think we've um, heard about in earlier uh, presentations as well. 
Um, the other, um, another example is, uh, for example, if you look at copyright governance, um, more views or more likes means more privileges. But sometimes, you know, that's perfectly fine. But if, if they are privileges, if they are, for example, incentives to create better or, you know, uh, more popular content or more meaningful content, but sometimes those privileges are mixed uh, with uh, rights. So when we talk about, um, um, you know, the rights of um, content creators, for example, how digital platforms comes up with their governance approaches to uh, protect copyrights of copyright owners, uh, this is actually um, uh, approached as uh, privileges instead of rights sometimes, so based on the popularity uh, metrics. So uh, that, that sort of, you know, informality there also um, creates um, inequality among uh, creators. So in, in that sense, cr content creators are increasingly precarious. Um, so apart from um, data which carries its discrimination biases and also maps into existing um, um, uh, ones across race, class, and gender, um, algorithms has its inherent opacity, as we've mentioned before, but also um, unpredictability, uh, which add to the biases and unintended um, consequences. So algorithms do not come with the cause effect um, um, relationship, they are based on the associative um, intelligence, so correlations based on what Mark mentioned this morning. Um, so uh, one example where um, algorithms, you know, con algorithmic configurations on digital platforms has had a great impact, negative impact on content creators um, was the apocalypse in 2007 at YouTube, I'm sure uh, some of you would know. The um, YouTube has this um, urgent need to appeal to the um, advertisers based on its advertising model, model right? So um, it needs to um, purge those um, sensitive or inconvenient content out of its, uh, not completely out of its platform, but demote its uh, visibility. So, you know, to, to uh, for example, terrorism videos or, um, conspiracy theory videos, um, misinformation, disinformation, all that kind of uh, videos. So there are actually a, a clearly a clear guidelines. Those sort of videos are actually affecting um, ad revenues for the, uh, for the digital platform. So that's the reason why uh, YouTube actually introduced the policy changes. But to what extent, in, in what ways does do those uh, guidelines get translated into codes? That's that that I think the process of translation is um, in itself um, problematic, and we d we don't know you know how this process takes place, but we do know the outcomes of that, uh, which manifest the pol politics of uh, visibility, where um, uh, creator certain creators' uh, videos. Um, you know, in no way violate these guidelines, still get demoted, and then the result is leading to the result of these creators get um, facing demonetization on the digital platforms. Um, so their videos don't get uh, featured in search results, or they get um, a, a lower uh, a visibility in the recommendation list and all that. So this, this actually uh, speaks to the logic of distribution of traffic or distribution of um, advertising opportunities on the platforms. Um, another um, example is uh, discriminative pricing um, at car sharing services where, for example, um, a user of Apple 
gets uh, completely different prices, uh, obviously higher prices than a user of Android. So the mobile devices, when we think about it, there are a lot of um, data that we can capture and also the locative uh, data that we've mentioned earlier. Um, so um, hyper-personalization can also take the form of discriminative um, advertising. So um, although we have already seen some optimistic signs where um, platforms start to regulate against it, um, so one example is earlier this year, Facebook started to crack down on ads for uh, um, jobs, house, ho housing, uh, or um, credit, and these ads can no longer explicitly target users based on age, gender, or um, interest groups that associated with uh, race. Um, another informality in, in relation to um, platform governance is its um, inconsistent um, interfaces, you know, between the front end and back end. Um, we we there was a session that we earlier uh, earlier this morning we were talking about um, invisible data. I think it's Edgar. Um, and I think um, apart from invisible data, uh, we also have in invisible uh, people, so invisible accounts. Although these accounts exist, um, sometimes they are, n you know, they become invisible not as a result of privacy con configuration, but but as a result of platform intervention. So censorship, censorship takes different um, um, forms there, but they don't even know. So that's the problem. So there's the cons inconsistency between different user interfaces, which which you know gives uh, a different level of knowledge about their own visibility on the platforms. Um, and then the idea of I thought the the idea of um, temporality, when Mark talked about this morning, um, is is quite inspiring. Um, I previously thought about the corrective action uh, launched by these digital platforms. These are ad hoc. Uh, corrective action. So, uh, in, in that sense, the platforms um, intervene or they they make corrective um, intervention based on what gets feeded back to them. So it's a constant um, um, it's a constant um, 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 configuration, and um, instead of a systematic and a binding uh, framework. And despite informality in platform governance, these platforms are making every effort to build legitimacy. So one of the one one perspective we can look at it is is how these platforms are um, um, using the um, discourse power of formalizing the informal. Uh, so ba for example, DD or, or Uber, right? So they um, are. Um, in their dis uh, promotion discourse, they're talking about alg algorithmic driven um, efficiency or flexibility, the so-called flex flexibility in labor relations or so-called entrepreneurial opportunities for uh, those drivers. So in, in what ways um, can we uh, justify those uh, claims? Uh, why the informal is always uh, good or in what ways it is bad? And if digital platforms are uh, navigating between the um, formal and informal. How, how do we account for this um, process and, and, and what do we know about the consequences of these? So that, that's the first, first one, so wrap up. Um, given the multifaceted uh, uh, nature of informality. And the second one is the, um, if we take it, if we scale it 
um, one level up or several levels up, we see, um, as I've mentioned in the beginning of this talk, informality is is not only a thing in the in the global south, but also increasing in the global north. So how how do we begin to understand uh, the geopolitical dimension of the um, informal and formal dynamics as a lot of digital platforms are expanding globally, and these include not only American-dominated platforms but also platforms from China, Korea, uh, and other countries. Um, and the third one, given the fragmented um, governance um, scenario, what is the role of um, users? Um, how do we how do we count for users' voices? If if there are multi-scalar governance, is there a possibility to, to make the uh, voice of these users or different communities louder? To, to borrow Antonia's term, the politics of listening, playing here. All right, I'll wrap up. Thank you. Thanks, Elaine. Um, we've got our final presenter for today. Um, so I'd like to introduce Heather Ford from UTS. <laughs> Heather Ford, please. Hello, everyone. Today is my last day of a year of maternity leave. Tomorrow I start a new job at UTS. So I can say whatever I want, no one will be harmed. <laughs> so I'm in the middle of writing two papers at the moment and, and as I say, I've been on maternity leave. And when I asked Tanya, what should we talk about when you, when you when she said we should do something, well, she said it's a, it's about doing a provocation, right? Um, well, she didn't say that because that sounds awful, but she said something about a provocation. So I looked up the term provocation, um, and the first um, definition was about getting people angry, which I'm very good at. Like, although I get angry, and I don't know if anyone gets angry with me, um, but she said, no, it's about opening up a conversation. So what I'm going to do is talk a little bit about one of my failed projects and where I am and thinking about exactly what is the problem here and what are the solutions very simple. I was asked to write a chapter for a book about Wikipedia um, while I was on maternity leave. Um, I thought, oh, it'll take me about a week. Um, it's taken me four months. Um, and the reason is they've been asking, they asked us to talk about what is the problem, um, what is the big problem with Wikipedia, and what is the solution. And we had to be very practical, which um, now, in my life as an academic, I'm probably not as good at. Um, the thing that I've been noticing recently about um, Wikipedia is that, um, so Wikipedia is now the fifth most popular website in the world, um, and it hasn't always been like that. Um, it was often seen as the underdog and acted in that way for a long time. But it really has a powerful role. But what I've been noticing in the last few years is that one of the reasons why Google has the, uh, Wikipedia has the position that it has is because of its relationship to Google, right? So Wikipedia was always prioritized in Google search results. Um, and so this was the primary way that, that users have discovered Wikipedia content. And this is the reason why they have become so popular. In 2012, Google announced a new project that would change how it organized search results. I don't know if anyone has noticed. Um, in about 2012, they started experimenting with a little right-hand um, info box on the side of search results called the Knowledge Panel. And um, 
the VP of engineering for Google, Amit Singhal, in 2012, wrote a blog post called Things Not Strings. And he said that the Google Knowledge Graph would provide smarter search results for users. So in addition to re returning a list of possible answers to your search query, it would also, on the right-hand side, um, include a list of facts about the phenomenon for which you were searching. So in addition to returning a list of possible results, um, when a user searched for Marie Curie, as he gave the example, um, Google would present a knowledge pan panel on the right-hand side of the page that would summarize relevant content about that topic, including key facts you're likely to need for that particular thing. Soon after this announcement, a friend of mine, um, Dario Taraborelli, who's the former head of research at the Wikimedia Foundation, was very curious because he knew that Wikipedia was one of the prioritized um, sources of facts in the Google Knowledge Graph, and he noticed a peculiar thing. So um, one of the first iterations featured a prominent backlink to Wikipedia. So you would search for um, Marie Curie, and it would give you a definition of who Marie Curie was, and then it will give you a link back to Wikipedia where you could find out more, edit it if you didn't agree with well, how she was represented. Um, it even had a Creative Commons share-alike license. But actually, as the panels evolved, blue links to Wikipedia articles started shrinking in size. So those links to Wikipedia, taking you back to the source of where those facts came from, started shrinking. And as they evolved and over time, the underscore was gradually removed so that the links weren't, weren't clickable. Um, and now the links are in a barely gray tone. Some links aren't available at all. It'll give you a definition and they aren't, uh, the source of what you're looking for is not available. Um, and this is continued in the featured snippets, which is something that happens on the left-hand side of the page when you search for how long does a goat live for? It will tell you that it's, I can't remember how many years, um, but will not provide a source. So Tarborelli was concerned at how dependent Wikipedia was on Google and how the changes that were being made to the way that Wikipedia content was being presented could obviously have a significant impact on the sustainability of Wikipedia. So if users aren't being presented with the information from Wikipedia without if they are being presented with information from Wikipedia without having to visit the site, or without even knowing that Wikipedia was the true source, then they would surely affect the numbers of users visiting Wikipedia. They were mostly worried, well, not Terborelli in particular, but the foundation has mostly been worried about fundraising, right? Because people are not being sent back to um, Wikipedia and so can't see the notices to, to, um, to be part of the fundraising campaign. Actually, there's been a quantitative study that's been done, and, and it has um, by McMahon et al., who found that facts in the knowledge panels um, are predominantly being sourced from Wikipedia, but that these facts were almost never cited, and this is actually leading to a significant reduction of tra traffic to Wikipedia. So Tara Borelli was also concerned with another fundamental pr principle at issue here, and that is that Google's use of Wikipedia information without credit undermines people's ability to verify information and ultimately to develop well-informed opinions. 
So verifiability, if you don't know, is one of Wikipedia's core content policies, and it's defined as the ability for readers to be able to check whether information within Wikipedia articles is not just made up. I've only got two minutes, so I just want to tell you a little bit more about my own journey trying to discover what this is about. The problem that the way that is that the way that the media has um, represented this issue is that Google equals evil. Google is doing this terrible thing, re re removing source information. What we've actually found is that Wikidata, which is a project of Wikipedia, is doing exactly the same thing. So the majority of facts that are automatically extracted from Wikipedia articles do not have source information for it, and they do not see a problem with that at the moment. So what we find here is this fascinating thing. So what is the problem? The problem actually is in the automation process and the logics that accompany that, pr that process. What I wrote about in my article was that what we need now is a campaign for the right to verifiability, the ability to find out where information comes from and to be able to go and edit that at the source. But what I've realized, given my previous work on Wikipedia, is that that is a meaningless um, right in a way. Because what I've found in all my previous research on Wikipedia is that the power to edit is actually so unequally distributed on Wikipedia because of its own governance problems that this might be an empty right. It might be empty to say that this is the um, answer to our injustices that we are we should be able to either on Wikidata or um, on Google to be able to go back and find out where our information comes from and to be able to edit the source. So what I'm thinking about more recently is work that I've been doing with Giles Maas um, around accountability. So moving from the rights language to thinking more about the original ideas that accompanied um, idea, uh, debates about how concentrated media power should be regulated, and that is through democratic discourse. And so we're thinking about the um, ideas of accountability and justification in terms of Rainer Forst and his ideas of being able to participate um, in inclusive discussions about what should happen and how that should happen on platforms as perhaps a way out of this conundrum because I find myself moving back into the rights language as an activist, of a digital rights activist, which was my job before. But it, it isn't, it's an empty um, kind of, uh, task really and I think we do really need to start thinking more about going back to those first principles. The end. <laughs> that was Justine Humphrey, Jathan Sadowski, Daniel Hines, Tanya Dreyer, Elaine Jingzhou and Heather Ford with six provocations on data justice for the Data Futures Symposium at UNSW. In the final segment we'll hear from Professor Mark Andreevic with a few reflections on the Data Futures Symposium. Mark is Professor of Media Studies at Monash University and delivered the opening keynote address on automated media. Here's Mark's closing remarks. I'll try to keep it really, um, really brief, mindful of the long day, and thank you for all your stamina and, and attention and really fascinating conversations and questions. Um, I guess I was thinking about this theme, Data Futures, and I was imagining what it would be like, 
I don't know, because of the work that I've been doing around data collection and data mining and so on, I've often had that fantasy of what it would be like to be, and maybe some of you have been closer to this experience than I have, to, to be at Google and to think, look, we have all this data, what can we do? Um, and on the one hand, the stuff that they write up looks quite creepy to me, but on the other hand, I understand the appeal of going, wow, look at this, you know, we've got a speaker that can, you know, watch people and collect um, audio. <laughs> what can we know about them? What can we do? And I was trying to imagine that that data futures moment for them would be something like, what can we do with data? And um, what we've done here, I thought, was, which was quite interesting, is uh, almost what can we do about data? Uh, and um, in a sense, maybe I'm romanticizing. I, I, I heard Ned make that appeal to that, to that romantic moment, and maybe there's a moment of romanticism and critique, but that, um, that notion of the hope that um, rather than just kind of allow the folks who have the data to think about what they can do with the data, to imagine um, all of the social contexts that are really important to understanding how data is um, collected, experienced, used. Uh, that imaginary of trying to think about the future, and I was, I was thinking also about Tom's um, story that that looked back, kind of looking backwards <laughs> on the on the present from the perspective of the future. Um, both of those things kind of open up space to um, uh, tell us tell a story or craft a narrative about the type of future that we want to build, and that um, uh, reaction or response to the world that we're living in seems um, hopeful to me in some ways. I'm glad that that. That, that you know the area that I work in and that many of you work in the academic areas is one that's taking on that particular challenge. Personally, I find it it's it's um, uh, it, it both a demobilizing and a kind of exciting moment for me because a lot of my work when I started writing about digital media was was really the attempt to say, wait a second, <laughs> look at. Um, look at some of the issues that are coming up here that we seem to not att be attending to that seem quite important, um, I'm worried. <laughs> and, uh, and, and what's happened over time is um, we've all become worried. <laughs> and, and so then, then I have got, I've got to think about, all right, well, what now? <laughs> because I was, um, uh, and that what now question seems to be uh, the really important and interesting one. And I, I, um, really appreciate the way in which people are coming up with quite sophisticated and interesting approaches to answering that question. I, you know, the type of stuff that um, I think I tend to hook into because of what I'm thinking about, uh, so much of the response in relation to the recent events that have led to this so-called, you know, backlash or the, you know, kind of, um, awakening to attending to the concern around the role that uh, digital media are playing in society um, have resulted in, a, in what we've, you know, what gets, I, I don't know, what we're maybe, what you might describe as a kind of ethics push, right? A kind of um, how can we get companies and the players to behave more ethically? Uh, and I, I keep thinking of the, the sociologist Leon Bramson's distinction between sociologies of conservation and sociologies of 
of change or transformation, <laughs> revolution. Uh, and you know, he's interested in the way in which classic soci classical sociology, I was very interested in this question of social change. And then sociology is a professional um, discipline starts to attend in the 20th century, maybe in the Anglo world, to conservation. How do you, you know, adjust to society? And sometimes the ethics stuff, while I'm super supportive of ethical behavior in general, uh, has, that, has that feeling of a kind of sociology of, uh, of or, uh, you know, of conservation. Like, you know, get these deviant companies to be ethical. Um, and the, uh, um, the response that I, that I picked up on in a number of, of the presentations was really asking that question of, you know, what, do, what would it mean to um, push beyond that, how do you adjust these companies to, uh, you know, whatever trajectory we all seem to be on that they're leading us along um, that gets to what Jathan was saying about capitalism, to actually asking, okay, how do you, how do we rearrange things on a pretty significant level? I think a lot of the questions that people raised were pretty significant, important, big changes, not adjustments. Uh, and I think that, to me, is I inspiring, and I suspect that that's what is going to have to happen. So I think it's, I, I'm, I'm happy to have this conversation and thank you for uh, all of your contributions and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> that was Professor Mark Andreevic with the final word for Data Futures, a series about how technology is shaping our lives and what we need to do about it. Data Futures comes to you from the Media Futures Hub at the University of New South Wales. To keep in touch with the Media Futures Hub, you can follow us on Twitter at Media Futures Hub UNSW or send us an email, mediafutures at unsw.edu.au. Thanks for listening. <laughs>